Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint live series. Uh, really excited to have you here today. It's hard to believe it is already December 2021. Uh, time is moving uh, also quickly, as I'm sure that you can all appreciate. A uh, little bit of background, if you're not familiar. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. I started the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint about three years ago, really to focus on the issue initially of restraint seclusion that was happening in schools across the country uh, and really beyond. Uh, our mission became to really influence a change. We want to see a change in policy, a change in practice around the use of restraint seclusion, but it really goes much deeper than that. Over the past couple of years, I've had an opportunity to work with a lot of amazing people, uh, including our guests today, and, and really our mission has expanded into we want to make sure that all the things that are happening to kids and individuals in the name of behavior that are punitive and that are really pushing kids down the school to prison pipeline, uh, that there are better things that we can do. And we really want to change the things that are happening to kids in the name of behavior to better supporting all individuals. Of course, we want to see safer schools for students, teachers and staff, but we also want to see uh, we, we want to see things like this um, not happening in the troubled teen industry or in the medical uh, settings as well. So a, a lot of work to do out there. A lot of great stuff happening. As many of you may know, the Keeping All Students Safe Act has been reintroduced. That's federal legislation that would end the use of seclusion as well as prone and supine restraint. Encourage you always to support your uh, local legislative efforts. But let's get on to today because I'm sure you are here uh, excited like I am. Uh, for our guest today. So today we have Julie Beam joining us. Uh, Julie is the Executive Director of the Attachment and Trauma Network. Uh, we'll be having a discussion about parenting, schools, and early childhood. Uh, I think you're going to really enjoy getting to uh, meet Julie and learn about the work that they're doing at ATN. And of course, if you have questions, feel free to ask those anytime throughout the presentation. I'll be keeping my eyes open, looking for questions as they come in. Uh, so you're welcome to ask those. <clears throat> I do want to let you know, as always, these sessions are recorded. Uh, this is going out live right now on YouTube and Facebook, but we also make it available after the fact. You can go back to YouTube or Facebook and look at the video, or if you'd like to listen to it as a podcast, we make the audio podcast available as well. You can download that on uh, Spotify, on Apple, or your favorite network. So with that, let me move to introducing our guest here today. So I'm going to go ahead and bring up here uh, Julie and give Julie a wave. And let me tell you a little bit about Julie. So um, Julie, as I mentioned, is the um, executive director there at the um, Attachment and Trauma Network. And uh, Julie is an experienced um, therapeutic pa uh, parent and devoted advocate for traumatized children. Uh, Julie has been the executive director of the Attachment and Trauma Network since 2009. Uh, she works with other uh, parenting mentors and leaders at ATN to support and educate parents about the impact of early trauma on their children's development and behavior and the need for trauma-informed attachment-focused interventions and strategies. <clears throat> so very much something that we very strongly agree with here at the Alliance Against Inclusion and Restraint. Uh, Julie also leads the planning for ATN's annual Creating Trauma-Sensitive Schools Conference, which we'll talk about a little bit later today. And Julie frequently presents workshops on whole brain, wholehearted approaches to therapeutic parenting. 
as well as co-hosting ATN's uh, Regulated and Relational Podcast. And I was telling uh, Julie as we were getting started here, I'm like, I'd love to have you come back and maybe share one of those presentations with us in the future. Uh, Julie also frequently writes articles and blogs about parenting, schools, and early childhood trauma, as well as a chapter on educating uh, internationally adopted children uh, in the EMK Press um, Adoption Parenting book. And that's really interesting. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I've seen through some of the work I've been doing, especially with um, a lot of survivors in the troubled teen industry, is, is some connection um, between, you know, children that have been adopted uh, internationally uh, and traumatic experiences and, um, you know, uh, behavior issues that have landed them in placements that have done a lot of harm. So it's, I'd love to hear more about that as we talk. But with that introduction, um, Julie, it is so nice to have you here today. Uh, really excited to have had the opportunity to get you, to meet you previously and to have you here joining our audience. So welcome. Thank you, Guy. It's great to be here. Um, we over at the Attachment and Trauma Network really appreciate the work that you all are doing um, because it is, it is a, a problem. Restraint and seclusion in schools and other places is, is a true problem. And a lot of the members and the longtime um, volunteers of the Attachment and Trauma Network are parents of children who've had significant trauma, developmental trauma impacts. And so we, we have stories that um, align very closely with a lot of the stories of the, of the people that you represent. So absolutely, absolutely. And, and it's, it's been, um, you know, a really interesting journey kind of doing this work, but it's been so, um, so amazing and helpful uh, to be able to come together with other like-minded organizations and individuals, you know, like, like ATN uh, and, and know that there's people out there doing amazing work and, and coming together to, to try to do things to, to influence a change. So it's an honor to get to work alongside you and, and so many others that are doing this work, but let's start off at the top if we can. And can you tell us uh, and our viewers a little bit about what is the attachment and trauma network? Well, initially, the Attachment and Trauma Network, which is over 26 years old at this point, was founded by parents, by a mom and a group of mothers actually in Kansas City, Missouri, who were um, looking to support each other. They were all adoptive or foster parents, and their children um, had diagnoses that in in the early and mid nineties was probably oppositional defiance or reactive attachment disorder. And so their, their therapists encouraged them to talk to each other about what was working in terms of parent strategies. So they were, they were go-getter moms and dads, and they did as much research as they could do. And before, um, before long it, people outside of Kansas city, started to recognize, you know, that they, that they had some answers, that they had some information and they would pull in speakers from various parts of the country if they could find them. This was all pre-internet. So when I, my husband and I added our fourth child to our family through international adoption. And when she came home to us, she was almost two, she was 19 months and she was not at all like any two-year-old that we'd ever met. And we quickly exhausted our local professional resources in terms of what's happening here, what's going on, why is this, you know, why is, is, are these behaviors occurring, you know, what's, what's happening. And it was through, um, you know, through networking that I stumbled across this 
this group of folks where um, where the founder was spending most of her days on the phone just trying to support families, find them local therapists and and local places to get answers. And the word trauma wasn't there at all. You know, they just didn't exist. So um, because what I was learning from these other parents was working for us, I, I was trying to give back as we struggled through trying to figure out what we now know in many cases is developmental trauma disorder, what that was looking like in our families. And so I, I literally had to give up my, my job, my career in order to, to stay at home and focus on her needs and her therapeutic needs, but started giving back through ATN. So when, when Nancy decided that it was time for her to retire, she's like, how about, how about you? I was like, okay. And of course it was, um, and you can probably relate to this. It was all volunteer. I mean, we were just, we were just doing it. We were doing it in our basements. We were doing it in our evenings and on our weekends. And, and, you know, our children were licking envelopes. It was like, whatever it took. Right. You know, so, so that happened for a good long time. Um, And then, and, and the, and the um, words that trauma started coming along and the neuroscience started coming along. So we really had watched it happen, you know, what, and, and ate it up as fast as we could get it. You know, that we were, we were before Bruce Perry and Bessel van der Kolk, they were doing their work, but we didn't know that. Right. And so it was just like, oh yes, do we have case studies for you? And, you know, that type of thing. So we, it was that, that beginning. And then, um, and then before long, some of our members started started coming to us with, you know, we we're parents, but we're also educators and we're principals or counselors or all of these different fields. And we're trying what we're learning through all of the things that we're talking about and the webinars that we're doing and the speakers that we're having. And we're and it's working. It's working in our classrooms. It's working with some of our kids who've been the hardest to figure out what their behaviors are doing. And so um, that was the the biggest next need. Our families were saying, you know, once we get this figured out, we a can't convince the schools, you know, mm-hmm. that we're that we <laughs> that we do know what we're talking about and that right. it's working, or we b don't know what to ask for in the schools and we don't know how to how to make that work. So this this group of parents who were also educators started collaborating on what can we do, what can, mm-hmm. and we started reaching out and discovering that there were pockets of really brilliant people across the country who didn't really even know about each other, but were working on trauma-informed education, even if they didn't call it that. So they, so, and we, we started sort of just networking it, which is why the attachment trauma network, the network part of the name is really important. We just started networking those people together. We said, let's have an audio summit. Let's talk about these issues. So in a lot of ways, similar to what you and I are doing today, that has been one of the main functions of ATN is to sort of be that communicator and that megaphone and that let's all talk about it and let's collect the information and let's have it available for, for people. And within the last um, five years, the, the desire and the interest in knowing about trauma-informed information, of course, has skyrocketed. Right. It's everywhere, right? And that's um, it's both good and bad. The bad part is that maybe people don't know exactly what they're talking about right. or exactly right. what it means. But the good, but the good, I mean, we're just like, oh, thank you. You know, finally, people are hearing this. So in 2019, we had our first Creating Trauma Sensitive Schools conference, and I, I figured we would bankrupt what little 
nest egg we had, um, but we didn't. We had almost 700 educators, and then every year since then, um, the attendance has nearly doubled. Uh, last year was kind of an anomaly because we had to do it all virtually, but it all mm -hmm. held steady. And this year, um, it's going to double or more again. We already know that. Um, so it's it's information that you know that folks need, um, and and it's really gratifying to think all of these years as as I tell my staff all the time that we spent crying in the wilderness finally people are making a difference in children's lives in you know using the information that that we had to you know search so much for you know mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. it's, that's that's it really I mean that's the history of ATN and where we've come from that's good that's fantastic and 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 I hear you on 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 feeling uh, you know, fe feeling that sense of, um, you know, probably uh, relief and 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 uh, that the people are beginning to understand the impact of trauma. And, and, and though we're not there yet, um, you know, we're at that point where we're still struggling between, you know, I th and, and this is my perception. You can tell me if, if you think differently, but, um, you know, the idea has gained a lot of traction. Uh, people are beginning to take it seriously in terms of the impact and, 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 you know, we're seeing training, you know, I think the challenge here is to make sure that, you know, when we're thinking about trauma-informed approaches, when we're thinking about what we can do to transform our, our parenting or our educational environments, uh, it's not just a checklist of things to check right. that you've done. Exactly. It's really about kind of changing the culture. And one, one of the concerns that I have is that, you know, I've seen where a school has a, you know, a half-day training on being trauma-informed and then considers themselves to be trauma-informed. It, right. It's so much more than that to really change uh, the approach. So why don't we talk a little bit about, from your perspective, what does it mean? I mean, again, you know, you hear the word a lot now, trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive. What does it mean to be trauma-informed? Um, and, and from your perspective, what does that mean? Sure. Um, at ATN, we we hang pretty close to what the SAMHSA folks, um, that what their basic definitions are of trauma-informed care. And, uh, and we um, we explain it by talking about the four R's that they that they have in terms of recognizing the trauma, you know, recognizing what trauma is, realizing the prevalence. Um, oh, you're going to put me on the spot, guy. What are they? Um, <laughs> well, uh, I, the you, last you, one is the last one is to avoid re-traumatization. But there is a there's a very important step in there. Um, oh, gosh. Well, you know, and I always revert to my own R's, which are easier to remember. Uh, you know, I, I often joke that there's three R's in education, which are relationship, relationship, relationship. Yes. So, so that's that's the point that I, well, that's it, easier to remember. Is. And and really, what it boils down to, as we talk about, and the reason that we named our podcast "Regulated and Relational," is that that the cornerstones of 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 helping children to overcome trauma, which is the goal of being trauma informed, right, mm -hmm. is to help them have better regulation skills and, and to be relational with them, which is that and those things are in concert with each other. In other words, when you are relational, when you have, have created a, a solid relationship with a child that helps their their nervous systems to regulate that helps them to learn regulation tools when they start to feel dysregulated. That's how we all learned it. Right. Mm -hmm. That was when I was, you know, I was, I was a parent, a, as attachment theorists would say, a good enough parent to my biological children before we, before we adopted. Mm -hmm. um, and yet I didn't understand that I was teaching them 
how to regulate. Nobody said, oh, well, you're, the way you take care of your infant is developing a, a relationship with them that is going to make it easier for them to be able to regulate when hard things come and it's going to make them more resilient. Nobody used those words with me, but the truth was that's exactly what I was doing, right? <laughs> so children from who don't have that, early on or have it disrupted because of some adversity, whatever that adversity is, that that ACE or that, you know, that whatever tragic or traumatic thing that happens, um, they they miss the developmental window of that happening in that early relationship. So it has to happen someplace else. And if someone had told me early on that I had to actively teach my child to regulate and that one way to do that was through relationship and another way was through all kinds of other neurobiological um, tools and things that I could use, my life would have been so much easier with her from the get go. We had to, you know, it took us years to learn that was what was needed even, you know, and to, and to sort of yeah. ferret out why are the behaviors what they are. Right, but, right. you know, but that's, you know, trauma-informed care is really simple on the surface and really difficult in practice because it is, it's an entire mind shift. Mm -hmm. It's a entire paradigm shift of what you, of what we typically believe about children and how they learn about behaviors and where they come from and what they mean and what we should do about them, all of those things. And it's, it's, um, you know, it's hard for me to even shift backwards now, you know, like when right, right. Uh, I'm leading a, a book study on, on Bruce Perry's book. Um, it's one of several that we've, that we've done, but it's always um, surprising to me when I, when other adults are like, so you mean that the earlier the trauma happened to a child, the more impactful it was. I mean, it's like a light right. bulb goes off in their heads because I'm like, yeah, because the less you have, you know, the less resilience you have built, the less relationship you have to fall back on. You don't, you don't know the world's a safe place because you haven't had that safe relational nurturing to be able to, to fall back on. And so right. it's, it makes sense once you know it, but you really have to, you know, you have to allow yourself to shift your paradigm and to shift your paradigm about behaviors to, I mean, it's, it's like when we're parents, we want to focus on a behavior as whether it's a good behavior or a bad behavior. And we want to stop it if it's a bad behavior, right? right? right. Instead of saying, okay, if behavior is communication, what is my child trying to tell me? What is this child trying to communicate and can't communicate in other, you know, in socially acceptable ways that they're starting to get dysregulated? What is what's causing them this overwhelmed or making uh, this absolutely and and looking beyond uh, volitional choice? You know, not yes. not every behavior is a matter of choice. And, you know, we see again and again, uh, you know, five, six, seven-year-olds who who haven't even necessarily developed the developmental capacity to to self-regulate or to, to uh, you know, do things that are expected of them. Uh, and, and people look at them as if everything they do is, is a matter of choice. And, you know, I found it really mm -hmm. um, interesting kind of looking at, at Bruce Perry's work and um, others, but you know, of how important that first 18 months is, yes. for example, uh, that, that was really shocking to me initially. And, and again, it makes sense. And, and we've been bombarded sometimes, I think with bad messaging about parenting, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I think about, I think about some of the, the common ideologies that have been out there, like, well, they need to cry it out. They need, you know, and, and there are so right. many things, uh, you know, the fact that we still have a pretty pervasive issue around corporal punishment, 
happening yes. uh, in in both schools and in in families in and parenting, the right. impact mm -hmm. right that that has on on you know very young children. Um, so I, I found that really fascinating. And of course, it gets into the attachment piece of this. So you know we we have a better understanding. I think people broadly, you know, through the work of the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, uh, you know, through a lot more awareness about trauma-informed approaches, have more understanding about kind of the trauma piece. But let's talk about the attachment piece. So okay. when you say attachment, what do you mean by attachment and, and why is that so critical? We, we're, well, the, the basis of attachment obviously is your, is that early first, um, relationship that you have, that primary relationship you have with your caregiver. Um, typically for most, for most of us, especially if we have healthy attachment, um, it was the person who gave birth to us or the, or the, or the couple who gave birth to us or, you know, it's usually the mom. I mean, <laughs> quite frankly, it doesn't have to be, it can be any number of, of, of people who serve that, that relationship. Um, so it, it's the glue. It's that, you know, we, I mean, we, we just flat out say attachment is the antidote for the, for the trauma. It's what is needed. We have to understand in Bruce Perry's book, he doesn't use the word attachment. He talks about love a lot and right. love is a good way to look at that. If, you know, if you don't understand the attachment theory language, um, which isn't necessarily, I mean, parents don't, but, but professionals often, often do. Um, it's, it's the piece that can easily be missing in a child's early experience for any one of those ACEs reasons. If you, you know, if you've lost your primary caregiver, if you've been in the hospital or your primary caregiver has been in the hospital, if you, um, if you have a primary caregiver who isn't able to care for you because they have an addiction or a mental illness or they're incarcerated or all of those things that if you look at the ACEs, if those things happen, you are at significant risk of not getting that early attachment um, relationship that you need. And the power of that relationship is around how it sets your view of the world and your view of yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's, and we're talking about pre-verbal so embedded in your brain that you might not even be able as an adult to articulate it without, you know, working through on some, in some therapeutic way to understand that this is who you are, um, that you either are going to, if you have good enough attachment, you're either going to, to feel like the world is basically a safe place and you're going to give most people the benefit of the doubt because they're safe people and that you have some power over what happens to you in the world, that you matter that you're able to you know, make a difference and that you, you know, that, that you have worth and that if you need help, you can ask for it and you can get it. That happens when things are healthy, when things aren't healthy, it, it skews the complete opposite. The mm -hmm. world is not a safe place. Right. I can't trust folks. I can't depend on anybody, but me, I'm not going to ask for help. I don't know if I matter to anybody. Right. I don't, you know, all of those things. And that might sound really far-fetched to you if you haven't, if you're just hearing that for the first time. Mm -hmm. But as I was reading it, as a mother of a child who was sitting in front of me, I went, oh my gosh, that's exactly what's happening for her that was different than my other children because they were willing to take a chance on things. You know, so things come up in like a way a child would approach school. I mean, my, my other children were ready to attempt anything that a teacher asked them to do. Try to spell this word, whatever it is, because 
the failure of not getting that right wasn't an absolute failure of who they were. It was just a mistake and they knew that they could go on. But internally, my daughter's um, internal view of herself was so fragile because she didn't have that early attachment piece and that buildup that she wouldn't or couldn't or it was just too overwhelming for her to try. Does yeah. that make sense? Absolutely makes sense. And, 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 and safety, the sense of safety is foundational. Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't feel safe, you can't learn. You can't necessarily e yes. even fulfill some of the functions that you might otherwise be able to fulfill if you don't feel safe and secure. And of course, we, we see that happening. What happens when you don't feel safe? Uh, people that have been through trauma, they, they then become hypervigilant. They become right. uh, from a mindset of waiting for something to go wrong or waiting for something bad to happen. And of course, that that sense then leads to a higher instance of distress-related behaviors. Even down the road, you know, I mean, when I think about very young kids, I'm thinking about, you know, behaviors that might be disruptive in a class. But, you know, as kids get older, it could be addiction or, or other types of things exactly. due to that lack of safety. And, and you're right, people very often are very dismissive, especially of very early experiences. I mean, the fact that you may not have memory of, of being below 18 months doesn't mean that your brain wasn't, connections in your brain, foundational connections, mm -hmm that weren't made during that time are, are very, very influential. And, you know, sometimes you hear things, uh, you know, when it comes to trauma, like, well, this happened to me, that happened to me. Um, so, and, and I'm okay. Right. Um, mm -hmm. how do you, right. how do you handle that? Because I mean, certainly that's something that we hear sometimes. Is well, and it's, dismissive. it's, I, I handle it with much of the same, um, description that that Dr. Perry uses in his book is that that what happens to you, you know, like like the experience of the trauma right. isn't going to impact us all the same. I mean, if right. something happened right now to the two of us, guy, you and I would both respond and, and react and have and have an experience that was different than each other, depending on so many factors, right? So our history, our genetics, our attachment, all of those things, right? That would, that, that play into that. So, so that's, you know, yeah. And we, and living in the international adoption world, yeah, initially that conversation was like, well, we adopted a child from China and she didn't have any problems. Right. We don't understand what your problem is, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, that's not even valid because that's like, you know, it's like saying, well, we had a car wreck and we didn't get right, a right. broken leg, you know, right, <laughs> and right, it's like, right. well, okay, well, that's I had a car wreck example. and I did get a broken leg. Right, so right. there, right. right, right. Yeah. It's yeah. that it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so, so that's interesting, you, you know, bringing up and, and I mentioned this as we were introducing you, but uh, you know, I think about adoption, foster care um, systems uh, that people may be in that, um, you know, one of the things that we see is that kids that are having more punitive things happen to them, restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment, or even ending up in a, a kind of a troubled teen facility, um, regardless of the pathway there, we see a, um, you know, a, a very large um, representation of, of people that have been uh, adopted or been through the foster care mm -hmm. Um and I think you've kind of explained that. We can talk a little bit more about that. And sure, and, that and, primary that primal wound, that primary right. loss, mm -hmm. right, is significant, and it puts a child at significant risk. Um, that doesn't mean I'm anti-adoption to say those words at all. That, in right. fact, at, at adopting a child who is at risk like that is one of the most important things you can do for them, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But but equipping the adoptive and foster 
families with that therapeutic knowledge of what that means, of what of of what to look for and how to address it in a wholehearted, whole brain way is really crucial, right? Because they're they're coming at the most significant risk. And I think what you see um, over, you know, what you see are are situations where maybe those those families didn't get the resources and the knowledge that they needed because we didn't have that. And so I know how hard, how difficult that has been to find as of late. I think um, adoption agencies and foster um, agencies are doing a better job. And it's not that they're doing the best job and it's not that there's not room for improvement, but they're doing a better job of introducing the ideas of here's, you know, this is what trauma looks like. This is what attachment is needed. You know, they're, they're, they're teaching that information. And yet it's it's hard because parents, some parents are super open to hearing that and understanding that and some are not. And so then you've got the whole, um, but, but we at ATN truly believe that every child who's gone through an adoption has a wound, has that mm-hmm. attachment, that primary wound. Mm-hmm. Now, some children you know, just like this, just like the car wreck, some children don't break their leg because of that wound and they can just go on about their lives and their, and their family um, situations are, are really positive and they don't have problems, but a lot of them are at greater risk mm-hmm. of breaking their leg, right? Yeah. In that, in many situations. And sometimes it's not at first, sometimes it's when they start school, sometimes it's when they hit the teen years or the young adult years and they're trying to like, like, become independent from their family and that whole pull away thing becomes. And so that's a lot of why we see that population in those teen programs. A lot of times is that things go, go way, way far out of. So you said something really interesting that, that kind of triggered a thought. And and the thought is one that I have frequently uh, when I look at the issues that, that we're concerned about here at the Alliance and, and, you know, of course, we're we're very supportive of kind of the trauma informed approaches and neuroscience aligned approaches and all of that. But you know, the the interesting thing is we continue to need to go further upstream. So it's not just about being trauma informed, but it's how do we improve? How do we improve the situation for parents that might be otherwise um, in a situation that is very difficult for bringing a newborn child into the world? How do we better support? young families and parents and how do we better educate people you know again there there's anybody that's ever had a child um can relate to um whether whether natural or through adoption can relate to the rush of advice you get from many different directions about parenting and mm-hmm. and, and i would continue to say that there's there's a lot of well-intentioned but very bad advice out there that that people get but it seems that there's this greater need upstream to to educate people about trauma and attachment to really try to provide for families um and you know so what are you, what are your thoughts on that how can we you know not only be re, you know reacting to the trauma but how can we more proactively try to get at some of those issues <laughs> It's so important, Guy. It is the essential question, I think, mm-hmm. at this at this point for us as a society, right. is what are we going to do to support the development of of healthy children by supporting their, you know, supporting their parents at the mm-hmm. beginning. I mean, and, and and Perry's work makes it really clear, you know, those first two months are critical. Right. And I I just 
I came back from Chicago. I'm a, I'm a grandmother again. So I had Congratulations. From, from spending two weeks with, um, with my daughter and her newborn daughter. Um, so exciting and exhausting. And I was, <laughs> I was there and her husband was there. He had, he had a week of, of, um, of leave and then he had to go back to work. And so I was there during all of that transition. And sometimes I was the third wheel and sometimes I was second in charge. And the whole experience was, it was, it was fun and blessed and all of these things, but it was exhausting. And I kept right, thinking, right. what happens to the parents, to the, the, to the moms that don't have all of the safety net? She right. had her husband, she right. had me, she had the resources to get whatever she needed for this child. And it, and still was, you know, emotionally spent, physically exhausted, mm -hmm. all of the things you are with a newborn mm -hmm. to the point that, you know, and, and looking for, you know, she, she's well-read uh, college educated young woman. And yet she, you know, she needed somebody to tell her, you know, what to do sometimes and to help and all of those things. And so it's, it, you know, if you don't have the, the social network and you don't have the, the means to get that, then you and your, child are much more at risk and we in this country from a systemic standpoint don't don't really make a way for those those children and those families and so already you know the the stress of the mother becomes the stress of the baby right. and already we're setting that up for so i i don't you know i can't even begin to solve that problem here but it is the problem, you know, it's the problem we need to try to solve as much as, as possible. And I, mm -hmm. I know there are lots of good nonprofits that are trying to do that in various local places here in Atlanta. I know of several that are doing that, but it's, it's still not enough. It's mm -hmm. a little like spitting in the ocean, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I mean, this just goes to show the ongoing need for one awareness. I mean, you know, some of it begins with awareness and, uh, you know, of course, you know, um, your, your daughter's very lucky to have Julie Beam as a, a grandmother. Um, you know, I mean, you've got knowledge and background and experience. Uh, you know, I, I was oh. thinking you were talking about this. I was thinking about how <laughs> if I could go back and do it all again and know the things that I know now, the things mm -hmm. that I might change. And, and, you know, we all learn along the way. And certainly I learned in my journey. I tried to be educated before we went on that journey. Um, yep, but still me too. followed some some bad advice and some things that I wish we hadn't done. Uh, you know, I have, you know, a great family and two, two fantastic kids, but you know, I can still look back and go, Oh gee, I wish, you know, I wish, wish I had known know. that or mm -hmm. wish I, you yeah. know, hadn't, hadn't believed that to be true. Um, yeah. so it certainly is a process and, you know, yeah. my hope in doing even things like we're doing today is, is raising, you know, raising this as a topic. So people think about it because the problems that we're seeing in schools, you know, again, that goes upstream. Right. Uh, you know, when we look at restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment, the kids that this is happening to are very often, uh, children with disabilities, very often mm -hmm. black and brown children, yes. very often very young children, young very children. often uh, children with a trauma history already. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, you know, by going through these things that they go through, it's further traumatizing. You know, we're, we're, we're setting children up that have already sometimes, and I would say there's a there's a huge intersection. In fact, one of my uh, colleagues and I, Gail, Gail Quigley, who I see on the, the uh, call here, uh, she's an Australian, has been looking at the intersection of um, disability and trauma. And I believe there's a huge intersection there. I agree. Uh, you know, especially as you look at things, you know, I think about things like autism. Uh, my mm -hmm. son is autistic. If you think about having communication differences, imagine the trauma, the frustration, uh, you know, looking at stories of, of children that are uh, non-speaking and the things that have happened to them. Yes. Um, 
you know, so, so there's a lot of progress to be made for sure. Um, but, you know, a lot of the things that we're doing are not only not helping the problem, uh, they're making things worse. So while those things have to stop, we also have to get that focus upstream and, and figure out how to better support the parents and families. Agree. I agree a hundred percent. And that's, you know, and that isn't necessarily an active part of ATN's mission. Ours is more of the healing once the trauma has occurred, right. but we talk about it a lot. We talk about what can happen because somebody who, an adult who has unhealed trauma and has, uh, and, and does not have healthy attachment styles is not, it's going to be so much harder for them to parent. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they have to work so much harder at that because they have to, um, work on healing and addressing their own triggers and their own own things in the same way with with going into any helping profession if you're a teacher you're going to have to work on you enough that you can remain emotionally healthy and emotionally Mm -hmm. available to Mm -hmm. your children and that's not an easy thing it's it's just not Right. And, and of course, you know, I make this point a, a lot in the, the discussions that we have, but you can't have a trauma informed uh, school, for instance, if you're not taking a trauma informed approach with your educators, right. recognizing the trauma that they've been through and supporting them. Um, yes. So, you know, this is where it gets really important. I want to pause for a second and look at some of the questions and comments because sure. I could very easily talk to you for hours and <laughs> let me sure. get, get a chance for other people to kind of weigh in here. And I'm just going to read through some of these. Uh, this was just a comment from Michelle who said, oh, my goodness, this is my life. Uh, this is also the first time I've heard developmental trauma disorder. So very early on when you were talking about the work of mm-hmm. uh, ATN and people coming together had offered that comment. Uh, I'm really excited to see uh, my friend and, and your your uh, colleague uh, Ginger Healy. Uh, I had Ginger. the opportunity, yeah, I had the opportunity to meet Ginger at uh, Mona Della Hook's uh, presentation here outside of uh, DC, and uh, fantastic. Uh, but Ginger said you can join ATN for free uh, and get support, education, and resources. So I do want to mention to people that are watching this uh, that's mm-hmm. a, a great opportunity to. Uh, join ATN to learn more about the work that they're doing. Uh, one of the the things that I've um, messaged Ginger about a number of times, and she's been really, really helpful, is, um, you know, we have parents that are reaching out to us who have children who have been mm-hmm. who have been through traumatic experiences, being yes. restrained or secluded. And I know you have a directory of, of providers. Uh, Ginger's always been great as well as just trying to connect us. But that's one of the the other things that you offer there, right? We do. We have a directory of, of providers who are trauma-informed and attachment-focused, and we're building it. We have we have 300 resources in it at this point. We'd love to have 3,000 resources. So right. if you know of therapists and and others, other professionals, we have doctors and and educators and you know all kinds of consultants. Um, if you're having you know if you're IEP consultants, whatever it is that you're having, you know, sending that information to us so that we can you know, reach out to those folks. We're trying. Um, it's a it's a fairly new directory. We used to just keep like spreadsheets and lists, and right. we were able to get get it funded to be automated so we're updating the whole thing and we really um it's available to everybody through our website that's an immensely valuable resource yes Um, it's something i wish i'd have had 20 years ago right Right. (laughs) absolutely you know i mean i can't tell you the number of conversations i've had you know with parents and and one of the recommendations of course that that we'll often make is you know that you, you need to really understand what has happened and that this has been traumatic and, mm-hmm. and you know people sometimes think when there's there's no visible scars or injuries that uh, everything is fine but it's not right. i mean the, the trauma right. that can be caused so and if your child has a neurodiverse uh, diagnosis anyway sometimes it's really 
hard to recognize that it's not going to there it's not going to manifest in typical ways and so mm -hmm. you have to get somebody who really you know really has that experience to help you absolutely yeah. uh so i'm going to bring up this is a rather long question so it's going to block us out here for a second but uh darlene said being separated from a biological parent is very traumatic uh it is uh, so traumatic that it's one of the worst things for a child it seems like state agencies don't understand this and often separate parents from children due to poverty. Um, what are you doing to reduce childhood separations and educating children's services and ICE? All those government authorities separate kids, uh, which have de devastating effects. Uh, we are bound to a child at a cellular level uh, uh, was biological parents. Um, so, you know, you know, I guess, you know, again, you know, I know that your, your work focused around certain things. Um, certainly uh, awareness is a big part of this. Um, do you have any any role in in working with uh, state agencies or providing, uh, you know, training or other things that might be helpful in getting more recognition in those areas? We have we have done some in the past. Um, it's not a huge part of our focus. We do you know, we we do attempt to try to you know, make a way to train wherever we're asked. So mm -hmm. we probably have done more in with CASAs and the CASA workers and the GALs in states than, than directly with the state agencies themselves. My understanding that the recent legislation um, has really put the funding, uh, has really put an emphasis on funding in child welfare to the reunification piece. And because, you know, with the idea that that is, that, 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 um, would would include supporting the reunification and supporting the the family therapeutically and working towards that. Um, some states are are more progressive about that and and acting upon that than others. Um, it's and you know it. She's right. It is a you know it, it's a lot of times children are. Um, separated from their parents by our state systems in ways that they shouldn't be, that with the right supports and the right um, um, education and, and access to resources, you know, the family could remain together. Obviously, you know, obviously in, in an unsafe situation where a child is being abused or neglected, absolutely not. But that's not always the case. And I've, I've seen it. I've heard it. I've, you know, I've, 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 witnessed it firsthand and it's you know it's it's sad it's mm -hmm. it definitely is is Absolutely. a lifelong wound for those yeah. children yeah and i'm sure there are some organizations out there really focused on on this as well um more specifically um yes yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, a couple other comments here gail quigley who is one of our volunteers in australia uh said uh love dr bruce perry's work uh regulate re, uh, relate restore uh and i add repair Mm -hmm. uh, I have a question here from MJ Jones. Uh, how do you get an educator or an IEP team to implement regulation in an IEP? Uh, and, and maybe even more generally, um, you know, do you have any thoughts or advice on, on getting people to kind of understand that concept and why it's so important? Um, that's, that is a really good question. I did the, the, the IEP teams, I mean, it's, I just, I heard from somebody yesterday that their IEP team actually talked about the child's dysregulation. So that's an exciting thing, right? Um, the, the IEP teams that I've been familiar with a lot of times have to understand it through, um, through a sensory lens in some ways, you know, that they, that, you know, sometimes OTs can be a fantastic ally for you, maybe, or maybe not depending on, on what that, 
what that looks like um, in your school system, because a lot of times they don't allow the school, the, the OTs to get very far down that sensory sensory path. But um, but sometimes they do because and and thank goodness, I mean, the, the folks on the trauma side of things have the folks on the autism, the parents, the advocates on the autism side of things to thank for that that push um, to ask for um, an ev sensory evaluations, because a lot of times um, those sensory tools are really helpful in um, becoming regulated. Mm -hmm. regulating tools right absolutely to, to you know the movement and thus and the tactile and the weighted uh, things and all of the things that that could be used for other reasons and for other sensory reasons are also regulating um it's you know it can be really hard that's why i mean we would love we love for people to get educators to get involved with us mm -hmm. um both in our educator think tank which is part of what we provide free on the on the educator side of things but also in our conference so that they can explore some of those ideas and find out what that what that is um there is a lot on our website in terms of there's a there's a um, infographic that families can take to schools about you know about the impact of trauma on all kinds of domains on you know, on on their behaviors but also on their you know their cognition and their uh, relationship building skills and all of the things that trauma does impact. And sometimes it helps professionals to see, um, you know, to see that it's not just a parent telling them best, but that there, there's a lot, there's science behind all of that. Um, and that's available for download as well mm -hmm. um, to help with that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, it makes me think you, you mentioned kind of, well, it's great to see them mentioning regulation, uh, you know, in, in the IP team, um, you know, the flip side of that, though, is that um, we we sometimes hear from schools um, some really, um, um, really, really bad thoughts in terms of regulation. For instance, uh, you know, kids are put in seclusion rooms under the guys. It's going to help them regulate. And, and there is absolutely nothing regulating about being put into a room against your will and having the door held shut. Right. Uh, you know, and, and people don't even understand that sometimes the, the child that comes out 15 minutes later that seems calm is not calm. They're in a dissociative state. They, their right. brain has gone into a survival mode. Um, so right. there's a lot of, you know, I mean, certainly um, through uh, ATN, you work with a lot of educators that are at the forefront of this, but there are a lot of people that are still fairly far behind. Mm -hmm. and, and there seems to be even a blind spot uh, around school-based trauma, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, we, and, and this is something I've been saying a lot lately is, is we can't have a trauma-informed school if we're in fact causing trauma. Right. Um, you, you can't have a trauma-informed program and be putting kids in seclusion rooms. Uh, it, the two don't, things don't reconcile and, and people often uh, within schools um, underestimate the impact of school-based trauma. A uh, kid mm -hmm. is thrown, you know, restrained and thrown into a seclusion room and they expect the child to come back the next day to the site of the trauma and, right. and, and exactly. re-engage. So there, there's certainly a lot of work to be done. It, it's great to, you know, it, it's great when you begin to see some of the words, you know, being used, but at the same time, right. uh, there's such a big difference between people that are really leading the pack here and, and people that are following a lot of the, uh, you know, uh, you know, a lot of what I would say are kind of uh, outdated approaches. I mean, a lot mm -hmm. of our schools are very, um, very steeped in behaviorism. It, it's, yes. it's very steeped in kind of the work of, 
you know, um, Skinner or Piaget or, or others about, you know, um, operant conditioning and it's about reward and consequence. And, you know, unfortunately that doesn't work for the kids that most need help. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's, and it didn't work for my daughter. It didn't work in our situation. One of the things that came up for me as you were talking about that is that, you know, well, there were two things first, and I don't, I don't mean this in, in a sassy way, but it may sound sassy, but um, why would I, as an adult think that somebody like forcing me into a seclusion room and putting in me in a you know, and making me stay in there when I am incredibly upset, imagine right. the most upset I've ever been. Um, and, and I can't calm myself down, you know, otherwise I would have calmed my, you know, right. if I could do it, I would have done it for right. you before and right. I couldn't do it. You know, how do, how do you think that's going to be regulating? Because that's usually not, I mean, some adults we do, some of us do withdraw in order to regulate ourselves, but a lot of times we're seeking a relationship. We're going to call somebody, we're going to call our girlfriend or a mom or spouse, somebody and talk through this. And here we're doing something to children that we would never, we would be appalled if somebody did it to us, right? I mean, it would seem like we were being imprisoned, you know, and and definitely that's exactly what's happening. So that was the first thing that came up for me. And then the second thing as you were talking is that as a parent, I needed, back in the olden days, I needed permission to keep my child safe and not send them back into that situation. I was because, because the system was operating the way it was operating and I trusted the system because I had no reason not to. Right. I, I just kept sending her to school when the school, you know, when things were happening there that were not safe. And in hindsight, that's probably one of my bigger regrets is that I didn't, you know, even though I knew a lot of things, I didn't stop it sooner and didn't say, Hey, this is, you know, because, you know, because we assume school is a safe place and we assume that that everybody knows what they're doing. And we, you know, and, and we, we just, we want it to work that way. And so, you know, it's okay if you have to say no and say, this isn't working out and we've got to back off and my child needs these things until we're able to provide a safer environment here, you know, even if that's Absolutely. a spot. Of- yeah. I, I can't even imagine the number of people I've talked to that, that have gone through that same thought process of, you know, well, yeah. I should have done something differently or, you know, but, but we are, we are one, I think we're conditioned to respond to authority. Mm-hmm. Um, we are conditioned then when the doctor or the teacher or someone in a, a position, a professional uh, position tells us something, we're kind of conditioned to say, okay, well, they're the professional and well, maybe this doesn't sound right to me, but um, you know, they would know. And I, I think, again, there's a lot of fantastic, amazing professionals out there, there that are. are doing amazing things. Uh, but there are still people out there that are, that are really following outdated ideas and ideology and, uh, you know, it's a matter of training. It's a matter of culture. Uh, certainly don't blame people that are doing things that they think are, mm-hmm. are reasonable or helpful. Right. Uh, yeah. And, I don't, I don't think even, even the teachers that, that were involved in my daughter's situation, I don't think anybody was maliciously trying right, to right. do anything wrong. Right. And yeah. I, and and yet that was for me, one of the biggest woundings for me as a parent. And one of the, 
one of the most wonderful things for me about our conference is meeting the hundreds and now mm-hmm. thousands of educators who are spearheading this work because Absolutely. they've seen what, you know, how things went down and what didn't work too. And they've known how many children they couldn't reach through their other, their behaviorism and their other ways. And they're right. like, you know, and they're like, we've got to make, you know, we've got to make this information known. And Absolutely. that's, you know, that, that gets me out of bed every morning. Knowing Absolutely. That people are yeah. out there. <laughs> yeah, no, no. And we, we have, you know, our, our audience is pretty diverse at the Alliance. We have parents of kids that have been restrained and secluded. We have self-advocates, autistic self-advocates who have themselves been restrained and secluded. But we also have teachers, administrators, attorneys, uh, related professionals, um, all people that have kind of come to the same conclusion that that we have, which is we can do better. There are better things mm-hmm. that we can do to support people. Well, let me get to a couple more things. I know we, we're gonna um, we're gonna try to wrap this up around four thirty today. Uh, so let me try to get to a couple more questions and comments here. Uh, and and I you know I, I haven't even got to probably a quarter of my list. So that just means I have to have you back to have more discussion. Okay. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, I have one here from Gail again. I'm interested to know how many of the parents you work with have suffered trauma themselves and therefore have trouble making an attachment to their children? I, you know, I don't know that I know exactly, you know, um, how many, because we aren't providing like direct um, therapy with them, you know, so we wouldn't necessarily know, but I would say that it very much follows the ACEs work to say that probably 40% of us have a lot of work to do. And the tougher our children's behaviors are because of their trauma, the more, we need to go do our own work. You know, is, is, is what I, you know, is what, what's been my experience because I didn't think I had any work to do. And yet the, the farther along we got in trying to help my daughter heal, the more, you know, the more good questions came up as to why it is, you know, why am I overreacting to this particular situation or this thing that she does or this, this way that, you know, that this is happening, but my husband isn't, well, it was because of my background. And then this, the reverse would be true for him. Right. And so I, you know, we are highly, um, um, we always advise parents that they need to look at their own work and that they also need to think about working on their marriage because in families of children with significant trauma that, you know, the rest of the family unit is at risk, you know, mm-hmm. of you know, if they're, if they're children that have, that are in the family through adoption or foster, you know, that puts an extra strain. If they're not, if it's a biological situation and there's other, you know, it's even a bigger strain because Absolutely. a lot of times you don't have those resources around mm-hmm. you and you've mm-hmm. got to, you've got to take care of yourselves. Absolutely. Um, Julia said, my son was completely hypervigilant after school failures. Uh, took him out of school. Uh, his PTSD took approximately 12 months to reduce. I uh, kind of a statement there, but but I'll just, I'm going to piggyback a question on it. And, and Bruce Perry's in my head right now, but uh, I, I'm going to ask you the question uh, and, and get your, your thoughts. And that is, um, let, let's talk about hope for a second. Let's talk about healing. Let's talk about, mm-hmm. um, you know, a parent out there who has had a child that has been uh, through trauma, uh, whether it, regardless of the source, whether it was at school, whether it was a mm-hmm. uh, re- result of, um, you know, adoption or whatever it may be, what is the, the key, uh, and the key may be the wrong way to put it, but what are things that people can do to help support individuals that have been traumatized and to help them heal? Um, that 
obviously the relationships are hugely important, you know, to, to build relationships every, every way that you possibly can to um, um, Perry's book is, is, you know, it's not necessarily a, a healing map, but it's got a, a lot of good guide points. It talks about, it, it talks about allowing um, the person to lead a little bit in that trauma with all of the dosing information that he gives and, and all of those, those types of examples that, that he gives at that it's the healing timeline is, is individual for each person in terms of, of how they heal and um, is ongoing for a lot of our children. If things have been significant and chronic and, and early you know, the earlier, the the harder that it's going to be. And it's, um, and part of what we do with, with parents is we talk to them about um, adjusting their own expectations around all of this, right? And what does healing look like? It may not look, you know, it, it may leave scars and not look like it never happened because it can't look that way. So, um, and then the same thing with on the attachment side of things. And, and some researchers are showing that if you build strong attachments and you work on relationships as part of that, um, as, as part of that traumatic healing, they, then you get what's called in attachment language an earned secure attachment style and strategy. And they think that that may even be stronger. It may even be more resilient than somebody who didn't go through any adversity at all, because you're able to get to and, and there's other research that sort of complements that out there in that whole post traumatic growth um, realm of, of research that's happening. And so yeah, the, the neuroscience, all of that is still trying to quantify that hope. But the truth is, you're stronger if you're able to have survived that and persevered and healed emotionally and built the resilience because mm -hmm. now you have a wider bandwidth of resilience to go through. So if it takes 12 months, if it takes, you know, five years, whatever it takes, you know, let's, you know, let's do it because it's worth it. And it makes us, makes us stronger for doing it. Absolutely. And you just got a, a, a resounding yes from uh, Yay, Ginger. Ginger. <laughs> uh, also Jennifer uh, said healing is possible and it's lifelong and mm -hmm. you know it's it's founded in in those relationships i mean yeah. you know i i think of bruce perry from that perspective of the the importance of you know even one uh strong relationship and how much value yes. it can have uh following yes. up from julia she said uh uh let's see uh, i trusted it was safe for him it wasn't so i kept him home uh for p6 and p7 should have gone with my gut uh somebody else said something very similar here about um you know trusting their gut and i think that's important mm -hmm. i mean i think as a as a parent uh being able to uh you know if it doesn't feel right it doesn't sound right uh question it do do your mm -hmm. research uh and julia also mentioned that uh that they're from uh, northern ireland and have had uh, generational, generational trauma, trauma. Uh, through great. you know being being in a war zone so there's so many different examples out there yeah. um, that makes it harder but it also makes it more important julia that you mm -hmm. and your son take those steps because you can stop it you know mm -hmm. uh mag said we're conditioned to keep sending our children to the wrong environment uh, i wish i had realized earlier and again i want to remind people not to um you know not to beat yourself up no. um you know i know it's 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 really difficult and, and you know we have healing to do as well the trauma of having a child that's in an environment that's uh harmful or damaging to them is yes. traumatic on us as parents and caregivers as well mm -hmm. so we need to be mindful of our own trauma and, and helping our, our children heal and part of that is realizing that 
you know, you are not to blame, you know, for, for these things that may have happened. Now, um, Julie, I know we are getting at about time. So be mindful of that because I know you have a special, a special event to go to after this. Um, so we, we had a couple more questions, but maybe I'll follow up with you on some of those. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to thank everybody that's joined us today. Um, Julie, this has been fantastic. And I love the, the work that you're doing. Uh, I wonder if you could, as we close here, tell us a little bit more about the upcoming conference, because I know you've got uh, an amazing, uh, you know, um, series of guests for that. Uh, so you could tell us a little bit more about the conference. And if you have any mm-hmm. other closing thoughts, that would be great. Sure. Okay. So the so this will be our fifth annual Creating Trauma Sensitive Schools Conference. Um, we are going to do it both in person and virtual. Um, we did the virtual last year, and we found out that there were rural schools and individual practitioners and parents and others who could attend in that environment much easier than getting on a plane, even if there isn't a pandemic. So we're going to try to try to focus for both. They, they have two different schedules, so you'll see different people um, there, except we will be filming some of the main stage um, people in Houston for the virtual. It's February 20th through 25th, and the, the in-person is 20 through 22, and then Thursday and Friday will be the virtual. Um, our keynotes, our, our in-person keynotes are um, the Secretary of Education, who it looks wow. like we've got it about a 98% chance he's going to be there I'll know next week for sure. Um, So very excited about that. And Dr. Fania Davis, who is a restorative practices and restorative justice um, expert and an advocate for, um, for justice and children and all, you know, we're excited for her on the virtual side. We are, we're going to have Dr. Stephen Porges, the creator of the polyvagal theory um, as our, as our, Thursday keynote. And on Friday, um, Amelia Nagoski is her name. She and her sister, Emily, wrote a book called Burnout. And it's an incredible book about about burnout, about what happens in our brains when we burn out and what we can do about it. And it's really going to be um, applicable to teachers right now, because this is this has been one of the hardest school years ever. So um you can attend either or both. The virtual, of course, will be recorded and offered for the next 90 days. We have all kinds of other things uh, involved in this conference. We have a community service project where we're making comm kits for the schools in Houston and um, all kinds of good things that um, that we want the teachers to, to be involved with. But um, um, we'd love to have you. You can learn more on our website, attachedtrauma.org slash conference. And I just put that link in the chat as well. Awesome. Awesome. And, and I'm excited to, to say that I'll be uh, attending. You are going to be there and, and presenting. presenting as well. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to see you there. Uh, not too long. I, I need to start working on my presentation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get that airline ticket. Gotta, gotta get Absolutely. There. Hey, Julie, it's been a pleasure to to talk to you again. And I appreciate you joining us today. Uh, I know I promised to get you out of here at 430. We're one minute behind. Uh, but, but thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon and would love to have you back. You're welcome. Thank you, Guy. I appreciate all the work you're doing. And thanks to all of your folks out there. Absolutely. Thank you, Julie. Uh, So for those of you that are still here, I just wanted to share with you a couple of quick announcements. Uh, One is that um, we have another presentation coming up again in two weeks. So, you know, thank you for joining us today. But uh, guess what? We've got more great stuff coming very soon. Uh, In fact, uh, let me tell you a little bit about what we have coming up next time. 
next time we have a guest, Dr. Aaron Hambrick. Uh, Dr. Aaron Hambrick actually works with Dr. Bruce Perry. Uh, and Dr. Hambrick is going to be talking about the neurosequential model, uh, which is the model that was developed with uh, uh, the through the neurosequential network uh, in Bruce Perry's work about how to improve the lives of children, families, and their communities. So uh, definitely another not miss event. You'll want to make sure that you tune in for that. Uh, and with that, I want to thank everybody for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to do these. I uh, really appreciate everybody that was able to join us and, and watch this event live. Uh, as always, if you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us. If you have guest ideas, we're always looking for um, more guests to uh, highlight here in these presentations. So until next time, thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. Bye-bye.